I think that the most valuable thing that Rachel has provided me as an advisor is listened to me and given me the space to do my own things and encouraged my own growth as a researcher. I think Rachel is exactly the type of advisor that we need more of in graduate education. She is motivating and inspirational both in her own work and also in her interactions with the students with whom she works. She's someone who encourages a work-life balance and it's not just work, work, work. Although there is a lot of hard work required, she also wants to make sure that as a person you're doing well. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, a podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. You just heard the voices of Shaylee Woodard, Caitlin Cordingly, and Sarah Sweezy, graduate students in UM's doctoral program in psychology, talking about our guest on this week's episode, Dr. Rachel Severson. I'm your host, Ashby Kinch, Associate Dean of the Graduate School, and I'm delighted Rachel's joining us on Confluence. She's relatively new to UM, having taken up a position in 2016 in the Experimental Psychology Program, where she mentors graduate students in developmental psychology. She is director of the Minds Lab, where she and her research team explore the attribution of minds and internal states to other humans and non-human agents, including non-human animals, inanimate nature, and robots. Rachel is also doing important collaborative work with the Missoula Public Library, where she and her team run the UM Living Lab, which aims to connect the amazing research going on at UM with public audiences. Every episode on Confluence, our guests read a passage about rivers drawn from poetry or literature. Rachel has selected a wonderful poem by Mary Oliver, At the River Clarion. We'll hear her read it and dive straight into the episode, in which we discuss her research interests in developmental psychology, including her unique and engaging story of how she came to pursue her PhD in psychology after early work in environmental policy and a stint in AmeriCorps. She's also an intrepid explorer, having sailed a boat to Norway, where she had a one-year Fulbright Fellowship before starting her postdoctorate research fellowship at Vancouver. But first, we'll hear her voice, channeling the voice of Mary Oliver, who asks us to listen to the voices of the river. Welcome to Confluence, where the river is always with us. This is an excerpt from a poem by Mary Oliver entitled, At the River Clarion. I don't know who God is exactly, but I'll tell you this. I was sitting in the river named Clarion on a water-splashed stone, and all afternoon I listened to the voices of the river talking. Whenever the water struck the stone, it had something to say. And the water itself, and even the mosses trailing under the water. And slowly, very slowly, it became clear to me what they were saying. Said the river, I am part of holiness. And I, too, said the stone, and I, too, whispered the moss beneath the water. I've been to the river before a few times. Don't blame the river that nothing happened quickly. You don't hear such voices in an hour or a day. You don't hear them at all if selfhood has stuffed your ears. And it's difficult to hear anything, anyway, through all the traffic and ambition. Said the river, Imagine everything you can imagine, then keep on going. Imagine how the lily, who may also be part of God, 
would sing to you if it could sing, if you would pause to hear it. And how are you so certain anyway that it doesn't sing? Welcome to Confluence, Rachel. (laughs) Thank you, Ashby. It's nice to be here. That's such a beautiful poem, such an amazing choice. Uh, You know, on Confluence, we really try to stress interdisciplinarity and the conversation that goes on in a great university. And, uh, of course, poetry is in my wheelhouse. I'm an English professor. So I was just delighted you picked it. Tell us a little bit about why. Why did you pick that poem? There are probably a few reasons. Um, One, I love Mary Oliver. Um, I love poetry as well. And I think that she captures in her work... um, a way of seeing the world and a way of being in the world that um, both inspires me and resonates with me. Um, And I, I really liked how this poem in particular kind of pushes us to think what we might be missing. And how did you come across her work and what, what got you in and what got you into poetry in general? Um, well, I started writing poetry when I was a young child. I, I'm not going to embarrass myself by sharing <laughs> those <laughs> early us, works. <laughs> none of us want to share our early works. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't remember where I first came upon her work. Um, I think the book that has this poem was given to my husband and I as a wedding gift, um, so that was a long time ago. Careful. Six, yeah, <laughs> I won't say. But um, anyway, it's yeah. been a couple of decades that I've yeah. known her work. Yeah, and it, it's you know there's an amazing subtlety to her voice, which mm-hmm. I love. That, mm-hmm. that the poems accumulate; they kind of build on yeah. themselves. Initially, things are so simple; it's like a casual conversational tone. But by the end, you kind of feel something has happened. That's why I love the way you said that—a way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the craft of this poem is amazing too. I mean, uh, you know that that phrase: uh, "If selfhood." has stuffed your ears. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, Mm -hmm. the metaphor of ourselves kind of filling up our entire inside out maybe and filling it up and blocking the way we hear the world. Yeah, yeah. And audition is such a key component of this, what we hear in the world outside of us. Yeah, yeah, that we can't hear maybe if we're we're so consumed by you know, by ourselves and what's happening inside. And and you, you said something uh, in an email about this poem um, that uh, it's also about sort of baseline shifting. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the idea with the shifting baseline is that out of our experience, um, we form, you know, kind of this norm or a, a baseline of, of, of what we have experienced, what we think of as normal. Um, and for children in the environmental realm, we see that um, the idea plays out where what kids experience in their childhood um, for, for what, you know, what is nature, that that then is a baseline against which they will compare any future change. And so with each new generation, these baselines are established. So what you have over time is, at least in our, in our history in the, these last you know, decades and centuries, is, is a degradation. Um, and these new b- baselines are being established with each generation, but they're shifted downward mm-hmm. in terms of what is 
um, what what does wildness mean? Um, what does intact natural environment mean? Um, and and yet we as individuals don't necessarily experience that shift um, because we're we're comparing our these kind of more incremental changes to this baseline, but we ha- we we can't, from a psychological perspective, really take into account the vast change that's occurred across generations. Yeah, that's that's great, and and so a poem like Mary Oliver's poem is trying to get us to to get back to some direct encounter that allows us to kind of experience what that baseline might be like, right? To, to hear those stones and listen to the lily, right. to be more attentive to a world that, that might maybe broaden the spectrum of our baseline. Yeah. Yeah. And th- that last bit of the passage, which ends with a question, I think that's, that's great, right? And the, the question being, how are you so certain anyway it doesn't sing? Yeah. Right? So that's getting right at this point that, you know, we take for granted the lily doesn't have a voice, but yeah. you know, but asking that as a question means yeah, maybe we attend to the lily slightly differently. Yeah. So it takes this old biblical metaphor and kind of reawakens it. Yeah. Uh, that there's a voice to be heard there. That's mm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and so so your research. I mean, I think another one of the connections to the poem, and we can kind of use it to kind of move into your research. Is um, this is an animate world that that Mary Oliver has given us. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a world that has recognizable human characteristics in it. And mm-hmm. a lot of what you do in your work in the Minds Lab is kind of explore that, explore um, the ways in which children attribute internal states or mental states to both human and, and non-human agents. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that research and how it came to pass. How'd you kind of get into that um, research area? Yeah. So in the Minds Lab, um, my research team and I look at how kids understand others as having minds and internal states. And so internal states include things like feelings, intentions, thoughts, knowledge, beliefs. And we look at that not only with how kids do that with people, that's in many, at many times that's our starting point, but how do they do that with natural entities um, that can be animals, it can be inanimate nature, like trees and rocks, and also um, other types of non-human others. And in, in, in our world today, technology is a huge part of our experience and children's experience. And so looking at how kids understand personified technologies, um, you know, whether they be your smart speaker or your or a personified robot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so and, and you had said that you the the robot research that you've published has had kind of a bit of an impact. It's one of the pieces that you're yeah. has, has had a little bit of a splash. It has. You know, when I was first starting um, as a graduate student uh, myself, it was very fringe. Um, and in fact, organizers of conferences weren't really sure where to put us. So we would often get put with like comparative psychology, which would be like, you know, studying, um, you know, primates or, um, and such. Um, and, and now, um, it's, it's, not fringe now, but yeah, but definitely much more on the, on the cutting edge. And there are many more people that are doing this work. And so, yeah, so some of my work, um, I think, really pushed the field into just being curious about how do kids understand these things, yeah. you know, robots and 
personify technologies more generally. Yeah, and I, you and I have never talked about this, but I, you know, I work on this um, Keck Foundation grant. I've I've interacted a lot with the neuroscientists on mm-hmm. on campus over years, and and I do some teaching in uh, literature in the brain. And in fact, I just taught that in the in the fall. How does this sort of set of ideas you're working on kind of converge with um, the work being done in biology on mirror neurons? And, yeah, and as a kind of physiological base for some of this, because I know a lot of the research in these Italian labs mm-hmm. is about um, the sort of mechanics of the recognition of imitation as a as a sort of function, a biological function of our brains. That when we see emotion, and so initially they were studying it with with um, uh, monkeys looking at other monkeys, but mm-hmm. eventually they substituted robots, mechanical mm-hmm. arms, mm-hmm. and found a lot of interesting, um, uh, you know, findings around the response mechanism as a kind of wired in, hardwired in uh, mechanism. Yeah. How does that kind of, you know, relate to the work you could do in your lab? Yeah. Well, yeah. Great question. Um, I mean, so one, we're, we don't do neuroscience in my lab, but but certainly there are there's overlapping um, questions around, you know, how do we categorize? And and we can see with with using um, you know not primates, but using human infants, um, and this is work by others that you know different areas of the brain will light up if they're looking at you know objects, animate versus inanimate objects. Um, and yet, um, you know, so then what, what happens with this, you know, kind of new category? In fact, we've talked about this as like that personified technologies may represent a new ontological category that, that are, you know, kind of a combination. Um, and in fact, and I think that's one been one of the really interesting findings in my work is that kids don't see, um, personified technologies as an either or, but it's more like a, like they choose from like a menu of characteristics. So say like we ask questions about biology, like, you know, can they, can they pee and poop? (laughs) Can they, can they die in in a biological way, not with batteries? Um, So ask biological questions. We can ask perceptual questions. Like, do they, do they see, um, can they feel when you touch them? And then psychological internal states, like, you know, do they have feelings like happy and sad? Yeah. Um, and even moral questions, like, can they, do they have moral standing? Can they be morally accountable? And what I think the the fascinating piece is that kids are, and this is kids as young as three years old, they get that they're not biological, mm-hmm. but they still think yeah. <laughs> that they have, they can perceive They have emotions, they can think, um, they can be your friend, and and that they have moral standing and accountability. You mentioned in your email with me that one of your intellectual and heroes was Robert Sapolsky. Mm -hmm. Um, What a fascinating person, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and and just what made me think about it right now is that you've been talking about anthropological theory. Mm-hmm. That's clearly been an influence on you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. There's a deep interdisciplinary root to your work. Mm-hmm. Um, Sapolsky, of course, started as an anthropologist and then did this PhD in neuroendocrinology and has had an influence a lot of fields. Is that kind of the root of why he's one of your heroes, or is it more his adventurous spirit? Oh, well, I think um, actually it's something. Well, yes, yes, all of those things, but I think actually <laughs> something, um, something else. I think that really strikes me about him as 
um, an intellectual is his openness to revising deep held assumptions. Mm. And I think that that comes about in his work. Um, as you mentioned, he, um, he traveled a lot and a lot of his work was studying uh, baboons in, in Africa. And um, there's a great story about um, baboons are highly aggressive, um, a lot of violence, of strict hierarchies. Um, and, and the reason that Sapolsky was studying them was because he was studying stress mm-hmm. and they were a model species of stress. And particularly, you know, for the ones that were on the receiving end of all that right, <laughs> aggression right, and right. violence. Um, and the so what happened with this troop that he had been studying was that the neighboring troop started getting food from a uh, thrown out from a, a tourist lodge. And so the alpha males of the troop Sapolsky was studying um, discovered this. And so they started going, just the alpha male started going over to this garbage dump as well. And after some time, um, the people running this tourist lodge called Sapolsky and say, can you come? There's something really wrong with the baboons. Do something with your baboons. Well, no, <laughs> it was more that they weren't, I don't think they were worried I mean, I don't know, but but they saw that something was wrong with the baboons. And um, what had happened was that there had been some meat infected with tuberculosis, Ooh. and the baboons had consumed that, and it's fatal. So this other troop was wiped out, and all of the alpha males in the troop that Sapolsky was studying were also wiped out. Oh, wow. And so, so the hierarchy suddenly shifted The hierarchy suddenly shifted. And Sapolsky saw, like— very unusual behaviors. Um, there was a lot more grooming uh, within the troop. There was far less aggression. And um, male, young males that were coming into the troop, so young males are the ones that have to, like, they have to go make their way into another troop, rather than being sidelined for months and months and having lots of aggression against them, they were being brought in within three days. Mm. And he thought, oh my God, they've been ruined (laughs) because of this event. So he went to the other side of the preserve where he was studying, started studying a new group. Anyway, years later, he came back with his uh, soon-to-be wife, and to, and he wanted to show her where he you know first cut his teeth in in doing this work, and that troop that had this unnatural event, they had maintained this new culture, mm. and and in fact, it's now been a few decades that this troop has maintained this culture, and w- and so here's the part that I think is so fascinating with that story is. It has been thought that baboons, that that their hierarchy, their violence and aggression is innate. Hardwired. It's hardwired. Um, This suggests that it is open to cultural change. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that that is, um, it's such a powerful lesson in his ability to be open to totally revising a core assumption within his field, yeah, and and deepening our understanding in a profound way. 
Yeah. And I think that, I mean, so often that happens because of people asking questions across a disciplinary boundary. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, and I think it's great, great segue. Cause I want to hear about your change, like your shift. Um, what drove, uh, you know, so undergraduate degree in environmental policy, mm -hmm. um, what drove the, the turn to psychology? Because of course yeah. we've already heard you're thinking deeply about, um, in the environment and your work, mm -hmm. but you're doing it through this other lens, through yeah. this lens of psychology. How, how'd that happen and what drove that? Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate doing my work in environmental policy and minoring in chemistry, um, I actually never took a psychology class as an undergrad. Yeah. Um, I'm... <laughs> um, I don't know if I should share that. <laughs> I think it's great to share. I think that's amazing. Um, and Because I mean, we make pivots, right? I we mean, this make, happens. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times... A lot of times when I'm talking with undergrads and they're you know trying to figure out what do I do next like what's my trajectory and I think their assumption is that all of us that are you know have had very linear paths and that I think it is helpful for them Absolutely. to hear like no many of us yeah. maybe most of us have had major pivots yeah that, that's healthy and that's actually a sign of intellectual vitality and I would say a sign of a really strong academic culture yeah. that that it supports that kind of change or shift yeah yeah, yeah. I, I can't so tell us yeah <laughs> so yeah so how did my shift so I I got my BS and um, yeah, so the, I guess it started maybe, it started with, um, I, right after I graduated, um, I took a trip for f three months um, into Nepal and a little bit into India and was, you know, just um, trekking um, in the Himalayas. And I found that I was really interested in what kids were doing. And and I should back up to say, like, I did have some environmental education experience while I was doing my undergraduate work. Um, but it was kind of with older kids, you know, fifth grade, high school students. Um, I did a um, an internship at the Presidio in San Francisco doing environmental education and really loved it um, and, and, and was truly interested in how do kids form... Um, a deep value for the natural world. And so I had that as background, but I wasn't really like inherently interested in younger kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I just didn't really have a lot of experience. Yeah. And anyway, when I was traveling in Nepal, I found that I was really fascinated by young kids and, and how they, you know, just their way of being and how they understood things. And, um, and, and, if you've ever you know traveled in a country where you don't speak the language, kids are often the ones that will try to engage you, and they'll they'll be patiently yeah. helping you. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I lived in Malaysia and Indonesia, and I had that experience everywhere I went. Yeah. But, but that's often the first connection. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was really true for me. And they're also fascinated, right? They're interested oh, yeah. in you because oh, you're different. Gosh. And yeah. Oh yeah. And I was part of that trip. My. Um, my husband, it wasn't my husband at the time, but now, and, and he has, um, kind of, he has red hair, um, kind of auburn hair and they were really fascinated yeah. by, by him, <laughs> yeah. uh, as well. And anyway, um, so I came back from that and, um, I think it just kind of opened up my eyes and I was having a conversation with my now mother-in-law. We were on a hike, um, and in the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. And um, she had a background 
in psychology and, and taught human development um, at the at the junior college. And and it was that conversation that I kind of learned that there was this entire field of developmental psychology. I mean, yeah. I really just didn't know it existed. Yeah. Yeah. And it it what I realized in that conversation is that the questions that I was having were really psychological questions. And and that opened up an entire world for me. Um, and it really brought together my interests in in the environment and this emerging interest in terms of how kids understand their world and value their world. So yeah, so that I think was really, um, it, it was, I mean, I remember that I remember that hike and I remember that conversation because it really had a profound effect on my life. Yeah. And it's funny, your story also has, you know, uh, you, you talked about travel as being one of these precipitating mm-hmm. events and mm-hmm. that's part of your story too. Yeah. Um, your, you know, your transoceanic voyage to your Fulbright fellowship and, yeah. in uh, Norway on a, on a boat. I mean, that's an incredible <laughs> thing to take on, right? you know, to, to make this big um, passage. So, so travel's clearly been important. Um, and you're clearly an adventurous spirit, right? So mm-hmm. how'd you end up here? How'd you, what your Montana story? Yeah, my Montana story is, um, so I was uh, a ski bum for a few years um, in Jackson Hole. And um, my, but my, I grew up mostly in the state of Washington, in Western Washington. And so my traveling back and forth, we would come right through Missoula. Yeah. And, um, and I was taken with Montana. I mean, I feel like Montana and Wyoming have, you know, a lot in common. And and I think I was taken with the Rocky Mountains. Um, And in fact, we, uh, maybe one of my first introductions to Missoula more intimately was um, our car broke down right before we got to Missoula. It was an early morning, cold, cold morning. And um, we blew a head gasket. (laughs) And so we ended up limping into Missoula, into um, the repair shop. And so we had to spend um, a couple days here. And um, and then funny enough, a different car a couple years later <laughs> broke down coming to Missoula. And we and my husband and I kind of laughed that like, we feel like this Bermuda place triangle yeah, it's of, kind of the West. pulling us in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, anyway, we... Uh, we and we had we had a friend you know some friends that lived here um, and we had come visited and went backcountry skiing up at Lolo Pass and so kind of had an introduction to the area, um, but you know love the region mm-hmm. more generally. Yeah. So when this job came up at University of Montana. Um, I actually wasn't really looking for a job. I was I, ha- I was at a postdoc at University of British Columbia and. Um, was you know just a barely a year into this postdoc when I saw the job posting, and it was a three year postdoc and and I loved it and I wasn't really you know looking to leave, but I saw this job at University of Montana and was like oh my god like you can't as an academic it's very hard to choose where you're going to live. Absolutely. Uh, Nearly impossible. It's nearly impossible. And so this was kind of, you know, just 
I mean, it, it was the only job I applied for, which is a terrible strategy if you're trying to get a job in academia. Yeah, yeah. It's a numbers game. And so, but I thought, you know what, if I could get this job, I would leave my postdoc. Like, this is this is my dream job. Um, and so I applied and and was thrilled when when I was offered the position. And so I feel like, you know, sometimes things just kind of come together and, and you don't always know why, you yeah. know? <laughs> but the story of it coming together is also, I think, part of, you know, there's a certain group of people who are going to so deeply appreciate the place mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, you were already predisposed to deeply appreciating the place. And then it just so happens this psychology is a fantastic department, yeah. right? It's also a yeah. place where you could come and, and exercise the the full range of your intellectual ability. But but then, you know, you were already predisposed. You weren't someone who's going to come in and say, well, gosh, it's so cold in the winter. Yeah. I mean, we are the people who were willing to, you know, live iced in in our sailboat in the winter in Oslo. So <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> this seemed comparatively easy. Yeah, piece um, of cake. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think also one thing that really attracted me once I interviewed for the position, um, quite honestly, was the culture of the psychology department here. And I you know, just want to say that, that they have had a, a culture that is really supportive and collegial and not every university, not every department um, at any university has that. Right. And that really solidified yeah. my wanting to come here. Well, that's a fantastic segue to, you know, graduate education mm. and your role as a mentor. Um, you know, uh, one thing um, we talk about on this podcast a lot, actually, is um, in every guest, I ask him something about failure and struggle mm. because mm -hmm. it is such a part of the professor's life. I mean, mm -hmm. none of us have like a smooth, continuous um, you know, line of success. We always run into roadblocks and obstacles. And, you know, I had a graduate mentor who told me that the, the single most determining factor on who succeeds in academia is how you deal with rejection. Mm. It's just part mm -hmm. of it, right? And so there's a, um, a famous couple of scientists, uh, uh, Melanie Stefan and Johannes Haushofer, who have called this the CV of failures. And they actually published their CV of all of their rejections as a way to destigmatize that, of, of saying, you know, and, and so you have this great practice, which I want you to tell the listeners about, about the rejection collection. Yeah. So this is... Um borrowed from Barbara Sarneka, a colleague um, who I think, you know, I, I think she came up with it I, and I adopted it from her. So the rejection collection um, is, so anytime we, anyone in my lab, and we can extend this, Ashby, become part of our rejection collection. Um, <laughs> I got that, a little file folder <laughs> in my office. Oh, good. <laughs> And so anytime we have a rejection, whether it's, you know, an article uh, that we're trying to get published, whether it's, you know, an application for a job or a scholarship or a fellowship, anything where we're having to put ourselves out there, mm -hmm. grants, <laughs> I, I contribute to it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, we list our rejections and, you know, you can make a note saying like, you know, if you want to you know, kind of explain or say like, you know, any any sort of caveats you want to add, but list your rejection. And when we get to a certain number of rejections, we celebrate, we have a party. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, what I love about it is that it turns something that feels hard and disappointing 
um, into something that's normalized. Yep. Everybody is rejected. It's, you know, in, in this process, you have to be because we're constantly putting ourselves out there. Yeah. And... It, and we're always going to get, you know, best case scenario, you get a, you know, revise and resubmit on a on a publication um, for you know when you first are putting it in. And anyway, it's just a way of of us really turning something that feels negative into into a positive. And yeah. people feel like they're like, oh yes, I get to contribute to the rejection collection. Um, and I think our graduate students need to hear that message right yeah. from the beginning because I and I, I think part of um, uh, what a lot of us experienced in grad school uh, is imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and the sense that you don't belong. And this can be a kind of way of, of uh, breaking into that yeah. a little bit and sort yeah. of saying, hey, no, this is all of us are, all of us run into success. Whatever placid surface we may be showing, right. Right, we're all dealing with this. So is that an attribute? What kinds of attributes are you looking for in your graduate students when, when students apply? Yeah. Um, I mean, first and foremost, so our program is a mentor-mentee model. And so first and foremost, there has to be an alignment between what the student is interested in and the faculty member's expertise. Um, and so that we can, you know, m- actually mentor the student. And so I look for, first and foremost, someone who has um, some overlap with my expertise. And I'm I'm probably willing to stretch um, more than some. I think that I'm, I, 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 I'm kind of intellectually um, curious and broad, and I, and I'm willing to kind of go into areas that maybe I wouldn't go to, you know, on my own. But I think that's also the very exciting part because like it pushes me, it pushes my thinking. Yeah, to pick up some new ideas, it picks, and work yeah, in a new area. Absolutely, and so I kind of really think about that as being, you know, a really great. Um, opportunity for for my own intellectual growth um so i i look for that like there but there has to be enough of an over <laughs> enough yeah. of an overlap um and then um i think i look for students that um i think that are willing to Will, kind of willing that they have some courage that so there's some evidence of like some courage like they're they're willing to maybe ask hard questions or um or questions that are um maybe not conventional or they're putting things together in a new way like they're they're willing to kind of put themselves out there yeah. um that have you know that they're curious i want to see evidence that they're really that they have that curiosity because yeah. that's what's going to drive them. Curiosity and courage. I mean, I, I can't think of two more important things because yeah. you, you have to be driven, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that the process itself is so difficult and so challenging. You have to have something coming from inside that, yeah, absolutely. that, that allows you to kind of overcome those obstacles. Yeah, yeah. What do you want to see in terms of the growth of your students over the course of their time? Mm-hmm. You know, I... Ultimately, I'm I'm trying to get them to be independent scholars, um, and so, oh, I mean, I think depending on where they are when they're beginning, um, it, their course will be different. Yeah. But um, but really, moving them to um, to trust their own understanding of the literature um, of of the field of, you know, of the ideas, what are the important questions? Um, 
I think that moving them towards not just accepting what other people have said, but, you know, interpreting it for themselves. And that may mean, you know, challenging longstanding views. This kind of ties back in with Sapolsky, right? Challenging those views, like really thinking critically. Um, So, you know, reading, reading things for themselves um, and understanding for themselves and then formulating new questions, um, seeing where's the gap and there's lots of gaps. So then what's the interesting one for me that's going to, where I'm going to have that curiosity and where the graduate student is going to have that curiosity. Yeah. And and that, that dialectic between, um, or I guess dialect's not the right word, but balance between, you know, foundational knowledge and Mm -hmm. skills, like, Mm -hmm. you know, enough to Mm kind of ask a good question, Mm -hmm. but then asking a question that's interesting enough to open the field up, you know, that's a dynamic in every field. Obviously it's, it's a it's a problem in, uh, that every uh, generation of students has to reinvent for themselves. But your field in particular, I think, is struggling with some questions about methodology mm-hmm. and replication. Yep. Um, that's been in the news a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so what kinds of issues uh, does a graduate student sort of today need to think about in terms of this underpinning scientific questions that are being asked about the field of psychology? And I, yeah. and I know, you know, one category is this acronym WEIRD that mm-hmm. um, is, is going, this is white, educated, industrialized, rich, developed, right? Uh-huh. Western, not Western, white. Western, excuse yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Freudian slip there. But I mean, there's something to that, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's this idea that, that the, the subjects of a lot of psychological studies are homogenous, in fact, yeah, that yeah. even though they might have the appearance of demographic diversity by age or gender, mm-hmm. but in fact, they all come from a fairly narrow class. And so there are um, questions about how universal the discoveries really are sure. on that yep. basis. Yep. Right? So that's one of them that a lot of people know about. Yeah. What are the other ones? And, and how is the field addressing this problem of replication? Yeah. So... Um, so the, so the, the weird issue, um, is, is certainly a a big one. Um, and I think related to that, and I'll, and I'll talk about replication as well, that related to that is, um, for our measurement, um, our measures developed also with weird samples, um, and, uh, and then how universally can we apply those measures um, and trying to understand whether our, um, when we're trying to assess kind of what is universal for development, uh, then if we're using weird measures and applying that in other cultures, are we accurately tapping into, you know, development there you know what's yeah. happening for uh, you know across cultures um so that's applicable kind of... to baboons and humans <laughs> perhaps so well actually a lot of developmental measures yeah. a lot of studies um particularly infant studies or ch- studies with young children where they can't give us um a verbal response um right. then there's a lot of um methods that are used both with primates and yeah. with and with uh, young children. I think I threw out in an email this Michael Tomasello book yeah. that I read this summer, Becoming Human. The, the entire structure there is right comparing human and primate yeah. ontogeny and, and th- yeah. sort of thinking about these, what are these distinctive things that yeah. start to break off and distinguish human mm-hmm. development from the primate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a big question. Like, what is what does it mean to be human and and what's uniquely human um, that we don't see evidence of maybe to the same degree or at all in in primates. Um, Yeah. So 
So the weird, yeah. And then so weird re- and replication and, and is slightly different problem, right? Replication is right. So if you just have a, a if you have a study with, um, particularly if you have a surprising finding, um, you really want to replicate that because it's certainly possible that you find something significant, but it's um, but that's not really truly there. And so replication is really key. Um, So there's been a lot of work like the replication project um, to try to, um, to replicate, you know, studies that um, to see do they hold, um, you know, when you do them again, exactly the same way. And part of the issue with that, why this became an issue is that um, there's a publication bias that, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, prior to things like replication projects, it would be like, well, that study's already been done. We're not going to publish that. Right. And, and so things, you know, wouldn't get out there, um, it, particularly if they, well, whether they did or didn't replicate. Um, and so there's a real concerted effort to try to replicate now. And, and really, um, I think also an effort to have um, multinational uh, collaborations, really large studies, in order to get at the question of, you know, is this something that's that we can, you know, say is a, is a universal um, across cultures. There's a sociology of knowledge problem there. Yeah. It's the pr- uh, pressure on faculty to produce yeah. um, that we kind of have to rethink that a little bit at the institutional level. We have to be willing to support work that reinforces rather and in and re- and replication. Obviously, its ostensible goal uh, should be to prove it wrong. And mm-hmm. unless that strong skeptical bias is there, then um, you're not going to get the best science. Right. But the flip side is you have a lot of people that are willing to commit um, their time and energy and lab resources to doing a study that's going to find nothing. And yeah. that's tough, right? right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a hard thing to sell. So I think that's an important message to kind of get out to the public yeah. that, that a lot of science is this gritty, hard work that actually doesn't that has a negative result or or shows that other work is not accurate mm-hmm. or is just, you know, doing the grunt work of repeating the study. The the base of the pyramid has to be strong yeah. uh, in order for those important breakthrough studies um, to, to shine, right? To to have meaning. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point to underscore. Yeah. I mean science it's not always glamorous. Science isn't right. always glamorous and right. um, but it's it's very flexible. I, this is advice I give graduate students um, a little jokingly that um, it's very flexible. You can work whatever eighty hours of the week that you want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> whatever's left. Yeah. yeah that's right. And whatever's left, you're sleeping. And yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we end every episode same way. We have our quick hitters. Okay. These are either ors. Okay. A couple of of threesomes in there. Morning or night person. Morning. Bitterroot or Clark Fork? Oh, Clark Fork. I should throw Blackfoot in there. Ooh, then it would make it. Oh, that would make it very. Yeah. I might go Blackfoot then. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Yellowstone or glacier? Glacier. Winter or summer? I love winter, but I think I would say summer. Bitterroots uh, or missions, and we'll throw the Pintlers in too because I know some people. Oh, I'm gonna say bitterroots. Well, this has been delightful, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, yeah. it's been a pleasure. If you like what you've heard, you've got a great production team to thank. Jordan Unger, graduate student in UM's Master's in Environmental Journalism, and Charles Bolte, a recent graduate of that program. 
You can hear their audio profiles of graduate students on SoundCloud or the Confluence website at www.umt.edu grad. Click on the Telling Our Story tab for podcast episodes and videos that highlight the amazing work our graduate students do. Enjoy the flow.